Hey everybody, this is Kamara McHale and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Kamara. I've been away again and now I'm back. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you guys so much. So we are on chapter 51 and remember my book is in descending order. So we started at 66 and now we're all the way down to 51. So chapter 51 is entitled A Way Out. So what I always do is I read like a paragraph and then I just start talking because it's my story and it's a nonfiction, which means it's real. So I remember what happened. So it says on Thursday, January 17th, 2018, I plan to get out of Christopher, Christopher's home. So remember now, Christopher is the preacher. Alrighty. I had gone with Aaron to a local self-publishing book fair in South Tampa. I could possibly have a few hours of taking my mind off Christopher. She and I arrived. I was pleasantly surprised to see so many self-publishing authors and vendors. There was a certain buzz about the event. Okay, so I'm going to go I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 2 so I'll have more to talk about. Okay. So it says while there I met some interesting people. There was a lady who had a book about getting off of certain prescription medications. It was benzos to be exact. During my history of being on medications, my psychiatrist always explained to me what she was prescribing and how it affected or could affect my body and my mind. During the initial onset of the medication she prescribed, she explained to me that there were other medications that could possibly help me, but the side effects included hair loss. I had been so horribly depressed that I was willing to take the medication even at the risk of my hair falling out. That's how bad off I was. So I remember uh, going to this um, book fair and it was all like local authors. I remember being there. I remember it was like, you know, a buzz about the event. It was a lot of people and uh, they had like a vendor table and then they stand there and talk to you and tell you, you know, what the story is behind their book. And uh, I just remember meeting so many people. But what is in my, what comes to mind is when I was reading the second uh, paragraph where it was a person there who had a book about getting off of benzos. So benzos are benzodiazepines, I believe. So at the time I was on some different medication. I remember normal people would have to have like maybe 10 or 20 milligrams. I would have to have 300. So it was like 300 milligrams a day that I was assigned, uh, prescribed by my doctor. And then it was another two or 300, um, uh, medication that I needed to take in order to sleep. And I was thinking I have pseudo suicidal ideation. If I'm taking medication and it's not helping, why am I still taking medication? And I feel like I'm going to hurl myself out of a window or off a bridge. So that's where the seat was planted about, um, you know, me wanting somehow at some point to get off medication. So at that time I, I took the book home and I was like, you know what, let me go ahead and read a little bit and see if this is a, uh, this relates to me and what I'm going to, you know, make the decision of being on or off medication or continuing on the medication or go ahead and get, uh, getting rid of it. So what followed, what transpired, I think it was the next day, I was so engulfed in the book and I'm like, wow, let me, let me, let me see, you know, how I can do this. So there was a pamphlet that's, I guess that same person had given uh, me and other people. And I just remember going back to the preacher's house. I remember just kind of laying on the, on the floor in his living room. He wasn't there, of course. 
And I was like, wow. So it was a thing saying that they, um, if you want to get off the medication, that you could, um, you know, uh, look through the brochure and then call this number to see if they'll take, uh, you know, my insurance. So I still had insurance because it was through uh, Kyle, who was my second husband, it was through, I was still on his insurance, even though I was in a relationship with the preacher. And I know it gets confused because sometimes I get confused with the different guys. So I remember uh, being in his living room on the floor and just looking through the pamphlet. And I was like, you know what, let me call. So it was, to me, it was twofold. If they were going to accept me for treatment in house for a week or two, that would always, that would also take me out of his house because it was horrible being there, like I said before, he was hardly ever there. He would wake up at five in the morning and leave and I'd be there by myself. And it was just such a, such a bad time for me, um, in 2018. So I remember, um, they said they'd take my insurance. They set everything up. They sent me to a place in Hyde Park and Tampa. It's a really ritzy part of town. I remember going there and, they assigned me um, a facility uh, in Tampa to go to. But what happened was I got to the facility and I remember the lady, the person, the um, whoever the admin person was, she came out and she was like, I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to take, to do this treatment here for the week or two. And I was like, why not? She said, because your insurance is not going to cover it. So imagine how deflated I feel. I'm on medication. That's not working. I'm depressed because of, um, you know, Christopher, I'm still hurt over Kyle, the second husband. And I was just like, I got to find a way, I got to find a way to feel better to get out of this mess. So then they recommended that I go to a different facility that would actually take my, um, take my insurance. So I remember I got, got my duffel bag and my suitcase because I just got there got my stuff. And the lady was like, well, we're going to take you to a second facility. She said, but we can drive you. I was like, okay. So I got in their little, uh, business, the community business van, and they took me to another place. And I remember the lady in the van, and I'm not going to say her name and I don't even remember what her name was. I just remember what happened. And I remember how she looked. So I was the only one in the van and she heard me on the phone still fighting to go to the second location to get help. So I remember she just kind of uh, did her hand up. She was getting ready to drive. She just stopped the van. She did her hand up. And I was like, yes, she said, she told me, she goes, in order for them to accept you, you have to tell them that at this very moment that you're suicidal. She said, if you don't, they're not going to take you seriously. And they're either not going to take you in or they're going to bounce you around. And I was like, wow. So literally, I it looks bad on me, but I went along with that. Um, and I, I said, I have to do what? She goes, yeah. She said, you're going to have to let them know that, you know, even more, um, more serious than you could believe, you're going to have to tell them that if they don't get you some help, you're going to, you're going to kill yourself. And I just remember sitting there and she was like, she said, I've seen it a million times. She said, people need help. And these insurance companies are a big business, she said. So you're going to have to uh, tell them, you know, kind of kind of feel you got to tell them that you feel worse than you actually do. And I felt bad at the moment, but I was in such a desperate place where literally she said, I'm going to take you in here and you got to she said, you got to beef it up. 
And I was like, okay. And I just remember going inside and they're like, oh, are you Kamara? Because they call each other. They, you know, they have to, um, I think this place was almost in Orlando or Haines City. I completely forgot about that. So literally I went into the place and, you know, of course they say, how are you, how are you doing? And I was like, I'm suicidal. You know, I'm not going to make it unless you all take me in and get me some help. And they were like, okay. And they took me through the process. So I did have suicidal ideation, but at that time I was trying to trying to find a place to go so that I could be out of Christopher's house, the preacher, even though he never, ever told me to leave. It was just that depressing. It was that bad. So literally I went to this place, um, in Orlando and went through the treatment program and there were people there who were as young as like, uh, 18 years old and they were addicted to heroin. Uh, some people, well, a lot of the people, more of the Caucasian people, they were addicted to opioids. I remember one guy, he was, uh, he was Mexican. Young, these are young people. One guy, he was Mexican. I can't remember his name. Not that I'd say it, but I remember exactly what he looked like. Uh, straight black hair. Uh, he was short and heavy set, but I think he was only like, maybe like 23 years old. But all of these people, it was either opioids or um, um, uh, heroin, uh, like ecstasy, all of these different pills. And I was like the oldest person there, but I was like, man, if I thought I have it bad, these are young people who are addicted to heroin. Like I thought heroin was something way back in the day when my dad was coming back from the Vietnam war, but no, this is stuff that's readily available uh, to young people, and these kids were fighting for their lives. And some of the kids, this was like their third or fourth time in treatment. And I'm like, man, but I don't know. I mean, we all shared some of the stuff we've been through. My story was like nothing compared to theirs. And I really had so much empathy for them. I think about when I was 18. You know, the worst thing that happened to me is I couldn't get a new pair of shoes or something simple, but literally imagine, and a lot of them started when they were like 14 and 15 years old. So then at the point that they were to, you know, at that time, the, uh, the parents were like, you have no choice. You know, you're going to have to go, we're going to drop, we're going to take you in here and you're going to get treatment. Some of the, uh, different places that I was in, you you thought you had to stay because it was like not barricaded it was like a secure facility but you think about it, if you're 18 or older they can't stop you from from leaving out those doors so it was just um a very dark and a very um trying time for me i'm going to um I'm talking about, I'm going to go down to a couple of the paragraphs. So I said, I, I read the brochures over and over. I didn't see any reason that I could not get help over the previous months. I would wake up and want to go right back to sleep. Anything to not feel the pain 24 seven. I didn't want to feel any pain. I was tired of depression. The pain was overwhelming to say the least. I was uh, insured on Kyle's medication plan. It was a requirement with the divorce. So I'm just talk, going back, talking about, um, how I called the phone number on the, on the uh, brochure and, you know, how they scheduled me to come in and just, uh, how 
uh, to me, utterly sad my life was at that point. Also, uh, one of the other facilities, I remember Kyle and his lawyer calling me and emailing me and texting me to sign the divorce papers about the alimony and, you know, his medical insurance. So I think what is really weird, I don't know if I uh, mentioned it in one of the other podcasts, but what was so weird is uh, I think it was a third place that I went to stay um, for, for more treatment. Like I said, I was getting those phone calls. We couldn't have our phones, but uh, they would give us like 15 minutes in some 24-hour period where we could check our voicemail um, or uh, call you know, somebody back, but they were trying to keep us kind of secluded so we're not obsessed with who's calling us, you know, what people are doing. We needed that that private time just to settle in on helping us with our issues and, you know, medications and being depressed and why we were depressed and, you know, what happened in our childhood and everything. But I do remember uh, getting all of those messages from Kyle trying to make me hurry up and sign the divorce, you know, decree and just everything that went along with that. But one thing that really sticks out in my head about the divorce paperwork, how about they nagged me so much that I actually, uh, I got permission to call my friend Emily, ask her to go to uh, to print out these documents and to uh, bring them to me. She had to get special permission. I couldn't really talk to her. She had to like hand me the document and that was it. But um, they were, uh, I had to have a certain form of the divorce decree signed and notarized. And I did it. And a person from this facility was a notary who worked there. But when I think about it over time, I'm like, I wasn't even in my right mind. Why did I sign that? And secondly, how did that uh, hold up in court? I wasn't myself. I wasn't thinking rationally. All I know was that would be one less thing that I had to contend with so I wanted to get it over with, but I lost out on so much with even the alimony. I um, and you have to think for years, I took care of everything financial, and Kyle, even though he was a you know a good worker, I took care of everything for years financially because I made that much money, and I wanted to give him the opportunity to be an entrepreneur. So why would why did I settle? at $600 a month when I could have gotten $3,000 a month. And the reason I know that is because um, when I had gone to the final hearing for the divorce, I remember Kyle telling me, he was like, it's like he was really nervous. He was like, thank you so much. And I'm like, for what? He was like, well, you could have, um, you know, the judge was going to let you get $3,000 a month. So I'm just like, how do you know that? He said, because when his attorney was doing the paperwork that um, the judge told him that, you know, I don't know why you're trying to give your, I was still his wife. I was his estranged wife, but he was like, how, why is, he was like, man, why are you only settling for $600 a month? So remember now I'm kind of irrational. I'm sad. I'm skinny. I'm quiet. I'm depressed. And I just was like, whatever, you know, if it's 600, then it's just 600. And I regret that. I'm not a greedy person. But when I think about all of the tens of thousands of dollars that I paid out for, you know, we leased a home for 
$2,300 a month. That was a lot, even though that was in 2012 or 2013, you know, that was still a lot of money. You know, we had car payments, a Mercedes, a, a, a BMW, you know, it, it was just everything, vacations, we catered stuff all the time. So when I thought back about it, I was like, man, why did I, why did I settle for such a low amount? Because I guess I didn't want to seem greedy on top of everything else that was going on. Like, why, like, why would, why would I, uh, what is it, disenfranchise myself by getting 600 measly dollars a month? That was barely sustainable for me. And I guess maybe part of it too is I didn't have my own place. So I was back and forth from my daughter to my parents. So I knew I didn't have rent. Um, He did pay the car payment. That was one of the requirements. But literally, he was only about out of about $1,000 a month. So him making, imagine how much he was making at a certain point at his uh, job that he would have to afford to pay $3,000. And I was like, so I really didn't think about it until he mentioned it. And still, I was so depressed and stuff even after that, I was just like, forget it. Whatever he's giving me, I'll just, I'll just settle for it. So anyways, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up here. I don't know how long I've been talking, but to me, normally it goes by fast. To me, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm really dragging this out. So anyways, you all can find me online at my web address is www.kamaramichaelworldwide.com. I'm on TikTok um, at kamaramichael 4 I also have an older TikTok that I switch phones on and can't uh, get the ownership of it, but it's uh, at Kamara Mikhail without the four. I'm starting on YouTube, so that's going to be conversations like this podcast, conversations with Kamara, conversations with a K, and with Kamara, K-A-M-A-R-A. Thank you guys so much for uh, listening, and I appreciate all of the comments that you leave and... um, I just, um, I'm just very grateful and I'm happy to have not only Kelly, of course, my producer, but my daughter, Brittany here with me today. She surprised me. So anyways, you all have a great day and, um, I'll see you on the next podcast.